Welcome to the PTA Elevation Podcast, where we help physical therapist assistant students pass the NPTE on the first try without wasting time or money. To learn more about the services we offer, find us on Facebook by searching PTA Board Study Group or fill out the form linked in the description. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's podcast. What is up, everybody? On this episode, we're going to be going over cerebral palsy. And just to keep in mind, when this is showing up on the exam, it's probably going to be talking about a pediatric patient. Moving on to the anatomy associated with cerebral palsy, it is mostly going to be from the brain because it is an upper motor neuron disorder. And the main cause of cerebral palsy is when the brain becomes a hypoxic during childbirth. So this is also known as prenatal cerebral hypoxia. And as I said before, majority of the cases we're going to see of people with cerebral palsy, this is the reason why they have it. So throughout the rest of the body, we're going to see other symptoms. It's going to, you're mostly going to see spasticity. This is the most common thing we're going to see because it is an upper motor neuron disorder. You're going to see motor delays. So either they're hitting their milestones a little bit later, or maybe that their reflexes are not integrating, causing delays in motor function in children. You're also going to maybe see some like hip dislocations or problems with the joints themselves because they could get hypotonic and that could cause problems. As I said before, this is an upper motor neuron disorder. So etiology, the most common reason why we're going to see this is because of that prenatal cerebral hypoxia. So this can happen in a variety of different ways. The most common is going to be asphyxia, usually because the baby is stuck in the birth canal or the cord is wrapped around their neck. The prenatal cerebral hypoxia could also show up with premature births. This is one of the dangers with premature births. Also a prolapsed cord, so the cord is crushed or the nutrients coming from the placenta are blocked. And the placenta abruption, just anything where the nutrients are not getting to the baby. So prenatal risk factors for cerebral palsy include maternal malnutrition, infection, or RH incompatibility. So you got to make sure the mother is getting to those prenatal appointments so then enough nutrients are getting to the baby so then there's no issues. Infection can cause a lot of problems in unborn children and then also immediately following birth. Lots of disorders can happen if the mother has infection. One of these could be cerebral palsy or like microcephaly. Lots of brain issues. And RH incompatibility, that is when the mother is RH negative and the baby is RH positive and it is her second pregnancy that is like this because the first time is not a problem. Postnatal factors could be a cerebral vascular accident. So the baby has a stroke in some way, trauma to the brain, any sort of infection, as I said, so the infection could be immediately following birth, so that would be a postnatal factor, or a brain tumor. So what's a cerebral palsy look like? So cerebral palsy is one of those things that is very complicated in its presentation. So the most common things we're going to see with this are abnormal muscle tone. So this is either going to be spastic, so hypertonic, or flaccid, which is hypotonic. One of those presentations is going to show up in these children. You're also going to see abnormal reflex responses with that. Most of the time, it's going to be hyperreflexive because remember, upper motor neuron could be hyporeflexive. So one of the types of cerebral palsy is ataxic cerebral palsy, and that presents as hyporeflexive. They're going to be hitting those developmental milestones a little bit later if they are able to hit those milestones, or they might see a lack of integration of the primitive reflexes. So for example, they might still have that ATNR reflex, so that's going to have that's going to cause issues as they're trying to roll over and crawl and stuff like that. 
So you're also going to see impaired voluntary muscle control and mobility problems. So that's going to be the reason why they might need some sort of assistive device as they're trying to walk around or navigate the world that they live in. So a lot of our OT friends make a lot of cool stuff that these kiddos can use to help them be a little bit more independent in their world, such as any sort of splinting and stuff like that. Cerebral palsy could present either just affecting one extremity, both extremities, so both arms, both legs, or maybe right arm, right leg, or even all the extremities. So there's a lot of different presentations of this. It could present with ataxia, as I said before, that would be if there is a loss of oxygen to the cerebellum or athetosis, so that's the writhing snake-like movements, and that could happen if there's a lesion to the basal ganglia. So keep that in mind for when we talk about Huntington's and Parkinson's later. The impairment could range anywhere from mild to severe. So based on that, that's how we're going to treat the patient is based on the symptoms and the level of independence that they have. How are we going to treat it? As I said before, varies based on the symptoms that the patient is presenting with. So a lot of times we're going to use pharmaceutical interventions, and obviously we're not the ones prescribing that. We're going to be just using those to help our patients out. So this could include seizure medication, so they might be on like Topamax or something like that if they're prone to having seizures because it is a brain disorder. Botox or baclofen are probably the most common things that we're going to use for spasticity to help the muscles be a little less spastic so we get more range of motion and be a little bit more functional with the extremities. Orthotics can be used to help with joint positioning and ambulation. So as I said before, they might need some sort of orthotic to help with their feet or they could need some, as I said before, maybe some splints to help put the joint in the right position. They're going to have custom designed assisted devices because everyone's a little bit different. So they're going to make sure that these are appropriate to make sure that specific patient is as independent as possible. A lot of times we're going to be co-treating with OT and speech. So the OT friends, as I said before, they're going to make a bunch of cool devices that are going to help these kids grab and reach things and be a little bit more independent in their daily functions. And a lot of time, because it is a brain disorder, there is a speech component that is affected. And that's usually due to either muscle spasticity or just a lack of motor coordination. So lots of co-treats. PT-specific interventions are going to be very much geared towards caregiver education because a lot of time these kids are coming in very young, even as newborns, and you're going to have to make sure that the caregivers are educated on proper positioning, handling if they need a splint, how to don and doff it, how to stretch their kids, how to make sure they're not hurting them as they move them from one position to another because they have lack of motor control. So that is one of the most important things. A lot of the time we're going to be doing stretching and strengthening to work on mobility. So a lot of times, as I said before, they're very spastic. Their muscles are not functioning in an appropriate manner. So we have to stretch them out or even strengthen them to help gain, to get some strength back in those muscles so then they can use those a little better for either mobility purposes, such as ambulating or if it's a kid, trying to help them crawl more or even to be able to use their wheelchair in an independent manner. So that goes into those assistive devices. They might need a wheelchair. They might need a walker. They might need loft strand crutches. It's going to be a lot of teaching the patient and their caregivers how to use them safely and appropriately. So the biggest thing that PT is going to do for these patients is to maximize the patient's ability to function as independently as possible. 
as I said before, these kids might get a little bit better and we might be able to give them a little bit more mobility and independence as they move around. But ultimately, because of the very wide spectrum of how cerebral palsy could present, it's really just about taking that patient that you have in front of you and making them as independent as possible so they can navigate their world. So keywords I want you to think about when this shows up on the exam, it's going to say hypoxia if it's talking about some sort of differential diagnosis. So think about that prenatal cerebral hypoxia. You're going to see spasticity and hyperreflexia. They could say something like they're toe walking because they have that spastic gastroc. So start to think about that because, you know, upper motor neuron kind of have those wheels turning with that. Any sort of delayed developmental milestones, that's going to be another one for cerebral palsy and those failure to integrate those primitive reflexes. As I said before, that's kind of a big thing about the delayedness with cerebral palsy because it shows up as that upper motor neuron disorder. And as I said, it's going to probably be a pediatric patient. I mean, we have patients obviously that are going to be coming in for some sort of, we're going to obviously going to have older patients who have cerebral palsy come into our clinic. But most of the time by that point, hopefully as you know, we've advanced as a society, most of our patients that are going to be coming in have had that intervention as a child with physical therapy that now it's probably just going to be some sort of ortho thing. So it's just keeping in mind that they have cerebral palsy in those ortho treatments, so they might come in for a rotator cuff tear or something like that. So sample question. A physical therapist assistant treats a newborn recently diagnosed with moderate cerebral palsy. What is the most important intervention the physical therapist should provide to this patient? One, stretching to bilateral gastrox. Two, taking measurements for a rear-facing wheelchair. Three, caregiver education on safe positioning and handling. Or four, progressive resistive exercises and weight bearing. So I'll insert some music. All right, guys, so the answer is going to be number three, caregiver education on safe positioning and handling. So as I said before, that is the number one most important thing when we're dealing with young kids who have cerebral palsy. So looking at the question, it's a newborn. So that caregiver education is extremely important because the kid has no motor control of their own right now. So number one, stretching to bilateral gastrox. Not a bad idea. It might help a little bit, but it's not the most important intervention that I mentioned in the question above. Boards are going to ask what's the most important thing. So what's the most right right answer? Number two, so the taking measurements for a rear-facing wheelchair. The kid might need that later on depending on how they're presenting with their gait pattern and whatnot, but it's a newborn, so we're not really thinking about that right now. I said three was the right answer, and number four is a progressive resistive exercise and weight-bearing. It's a newborn. They're not going to be walking yet or and doing any sort of weight-bearing, and this might be something that would be better for them as they get a little older. All right, guys, thanks for listening to this episode, and I'll see you in the next one. Thank you for listening to this episode of the PTA Elevation Podcast. We look forward to continually serving you as you embark on your journey towards becoming a licensed physical therapist assistant. We thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you in the next episode.